Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Without further ado, I'm going to jump right into our interview with with Robert Green. Uh, Robert I will read the uh, synopsis, or do we, you just want to sort of talk about the, the story behind uh, this, your film, Bisbee 17? I can do it either way. Yeah, I, just... no, I'm happy to say. So, yeah, okay. so, yeah 1917, uh, we were just a couple months into World War One, and uh, the in- industrial workers of the world came to Bisbee, a copper, copper town uh, seven miles from the Mexico border, and the IWW was the most radical union that sort of ever existed in this country, and they radicalized the local union, and they went on strike. And just a couple of weeks later, the the, the sheriff uh, deputized 2,000 men. Um, the sheriff was backed by the mining companies, uh, the biggest one being Phelps Dodge, as you mentioned, the biggest mining company in the world at that time. And they, 2,000 men armed, gunned, uh, uh, you know, armed with, with, with rifles and whatnot, rounded up 2,000 strikers and herded them to the to the ballpark where they uh, 1,200, 800 ended up going back to work, but 1,200 were thrown on the cattle cars and shipped to the middle of the New Mexico desert and left there. Um, most of them were immigrants, uh, uh, and most of the people doing the rounding up were Anglo-Saxons. So um, there's a lot there. And so what we did was we went to the town and we reenacted the the whole thing with the locals today. So people yeah. were playing versions of their ancestors, or they were playing uh, people that you know they that they related to, and they they chose their own roles. And we reenacted the whole thing. Well, it's a remarkable achievement. I'm, I want to ask you how you came to know about this story. This is something one of those sort of Howard's in the you know the people's history of America kind of story. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'd never heard anything about this or like this before. So how did you find out about Bisbee? Well, when I in 2003, when I first started going there, um, my my mother-in-law had bought a mining cabin in town to, just for like family gathering kind of thing, just like a vacation place. Um, and that that's the same. So I fell in love with the place. I love Bisbee. It's a, it's a remarkable place. It feels <clears throat> it feels like you're walking, you know, on a movie set, honestly. Um, and and it has a real sense of ghosts, like sort of swirling all around, which I hope you can sense in the film as well. Yeah. And that's when I heard that I read Robert Euston's Bisbee Seventeen, which was a a novel written in uh, the 70s that that basically is a fictional account of this of the deportation, and and I, yeah, I was Howard Zinn is exactly where my head went. I was reading People's History at the time, 2003, um, like a lot of people, really thinking about sort of inspiration for radical movements in this country and 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 things that were not taught, and the it, I was shocked by it. I mean, you know, of course, and. So this was many years before I made my first feature film, and my first thought was, hey, maybe we can we can restage this with the locals. And I don't, I didn't have any idea what that meant or or you know how to go about that, but that was just a sort of lingering thought. And then many years later, we realized that 2017 was the 100th anniversary, and that was the time to make the film. 
Well, you and you've anticipated my next question, which is that this is it just feels like an immense undertaking on your part to not only to get in, to sort of get to the right people in town, but to convince this sort of critical mass of people to be participants in it, knowing full well that for many of them and, and it comes across in, in varying uh, degrees in the film that they would not be so reluctant to revisit this history of their town. So I'm really very interested in how all of that part of this unfolded for you. Sure, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we so what we did was we, we took four trips before we moved there. So we moved there in, you know, early June um, and were there for six weeks or so um, to shoot the, 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 the biggest part of the film. Mm-hmm. But before that, we had taken several trips there, Four or five trips where we where we started to talk to people and meet people, and I I did bene- have some benefit from having been to Bisbee many times. I kind of understood the town. Um, I, I didn't know the people that are in the film, but I did I didn't know the place, and and that was and Bisbee is definitely a place that you have to you know you have to kind of know it um, in order to to be able to talk to people really um, yeah. like a lot of small towns, and then and then yeah I mean the the. Con- convincing people to let us document their process, you know, so like Lori McKenna, right. her process or the Centennial Committee with, or Charles Bethay, who was writing his podcast that became the voiceover, things like that that were already happening. Mike Mike Anderson doing the research into what happened to the deportees. Um, the things that you see in the film that are docu- documents of people's process, that people were down for that. But the, but the reenactment... <laughs> You know, the idea of playing dress-up and doing this, um, you, you have to keep in mind, as you see in the film, Tombstone is just 25 minutes away, and Bisbee very much does not want to be Tombstone. Um, they uh, Tombstone sort of reenacts a, a kind of fake history every, you know, four or five times daily, right? Right. Um, to sort of play out, play play the myth of the American, you know, West over and over again, and, and Bisbee residents don't want to do that, so... I needed to. We needed to convince them that this was not, um, you know, this was not a, this was not a traditional reenactment, and we were doing something different. And, you know, and, but and it was, so the reenactment was our idea, but it still comes from uh, a collaborative sense because Chris Dietz, who's a character in the film, he wanted to do a reenactment ten years ago. Um, so there, there, it still comes from ideas that are percolating in the air. And frankly, I think the town was ready. To, to deal with this, I think the on, on all sides, you know, this is something that people were ready to talk about, and I think that's part of what animates the whole thing. Right, where Tombstone is the mythology, this is sort of the anti-mythology of the West, right? In, a, in, a, right. in their, their story, and I can understand that, and that's one of the reasons why it was important, and I think very uh, smart of you to introduce sort of the the demographic elements within the within the town. The change, I'm sure, changing demographics. Obviously, it's gone from being a very successful mining town. It was until relatively recently thriving, as as as, as said in the film, went from being the richest town or city in Arizona to now one of not the poorest. And so by introducing some of these elements into the film of the people who are sort of still there and working and trying to make a make a go of it, you, I can see where the receptive quality, the receptive or the receptiveness, maybe that's a better way to put it, of people there to explore something that is painful. And again, it had to be something that a lot of people would rather not be reminded of. 
Is that, yeah, is I that mean, fair? Yeah, yeah, when you, like, take the Ray family, for example. Uh, you know, Sue Ray, who is now, um, is the matriarch of the Ray family and, and, you know, fairly recently just lost her husband. Uh, and she, she has, you know, tried to talk about the deportation for many years. Her grandfather deported his own brother. Right. Um, and, and that, that was a trauma to that family and it, and it sort of, it, it ripped the family apart and, and has been a, a source of shame and pain for many years for, for the Ray family. And this is something, you know, Sue Ray want, has all, has long wanted to talk about. And she's wanted to, to work through this and, and, but there wasn't really a method for her to do it. So when, so, you know, as the anniversary, the hundredth anniversary was sort of the, the, the place to hang, hang everyone's hat on. We can, now it's time to, to, to bring this up. Now it's time to confront this. And so she was, you know, it was her idea to have, uh, her son, Steve and Mal recreate the bro- brother deporting brother. Um, and so in that sense, it you know, it's a highly collaborative yeah. process um, because she, you know, she, she wanted to experience that and she wanted to be a part of that telling. And you can, you can sense her need to express this in the film. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's palpable. Right. And you see an arc to her particular story in that when you first, when we first see her on screen, she's talking about how important this was because of the, the, the political atmosphere at that time. It was World War I. Copper was very important to the war effort. There was a lot of sort of things happening, but at the same time, we haven't really gotten too much into this. Well, you, you mentioned the striking workers and, and the miners, the striking miners, and the impact all this had on the town. Before we go any further, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Robert Green, and he's the director of a new documentary coming out today here in Los Angeles called Bisbee 17. We'll know him from other work such as Actress and Kate Plays Christine. You also collaborate with an awful lot of uh, other directors on their projects, and they collaborate with you on, on, on yours. It's a, it looks like you have a remarkable little uh, cadre of people that uh, reinforce each other with their projects, and I, I find that uh, find that very, very cool. Um I, we we really I haven't done justice also to the part of the film that I find remarkable and amazing, and you pulled this off beautifully, uh, which is sort of the, the reenactment part is more than just you going out and filming people walking through a particular sort of the motions of like a Civil War reenactment often is or a, or a parade down Main Street on Fourth of July. This is people get into character. They they have. They have roles. Tell me a little bit about. You can do a better job of describing what I'm trying to describe here, because it is a phenomenally well done. Uh, while it takes a little bit of time to get used to this, what you're doing with the film, once you get into this part of the film and really embrace it, it is a remarkable achievement of how have you been able to pull this off. Tell me what happened in that in that process. Well, thank you. Um, the, yeah, I mean, the, the the trick there was that you need to, you know, when you're seeing people play, dress up and play roles, first of all, what, what you're watching is people processing. You know, when you try to understand a role or you're putting on a performance, what you, what you're often, what you're doing is going through an, uh, the, the, the thought, the thinking of understanding. And that's what makes the film click i think is yeah. that you're you you are watching people think through this and it's and that's an important thing to see because then it gets it helps you think through this as a viewer but you know you have to care the the way the 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 film works is you you really do have to care about these people who are you know 
dressing up as you know uh, either strike striking miners or you know uh, people on the company side doing the rounding up, and you have to you have to put your be able to put yourself in their place and be able to work through with them what it means to play these roles. And so, the, the, what the film does is we we introduce characters and then you see those characters interact in this at the end with this large scale recreation of the deportation. And you know that that was always we always knew that the only way that would work is if is if you you know you understood people playing these roles and so, but but that day the day that you know the day that it happened I I was uh, moved and surprised by how violent and serious people took it when when you see the the uh, the old photographs of the deportation they're they're hauntingly serene they're they're really calm and. Or order orderly in a way that uh, is is a little scary. Um, but it it looks like the deportation, even though there was widespread reports of violence in the streets, it's still the the photographs sort of tell this weird story that you know everything was orderly and calm. Right. But when we when we pushed when we said action, people went at each other, and they and they did that on their own. And so what you actually are seeing in the recreation is what we orchestrated, what we sort of put. But you know, we we put this all together. We intervened to make this happen. But when 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 it's when it's happening, it is the town itself the, the, themselves working through something in a in this sort of play acting way. Right. And then by the end, they're coming together in in a really incredible way, which I still find moving to think about. They they went at each other. They played these roles. They took it very seriously, sometimes too seriously. Uh, and then in the end, they were hugging each other, saying, good job, you know, what a thing we did today. Yeah, it is remarkable. And I mean, you, you, I don't know how many cameras you had rolling on that day, but you seem to be able to pick up a lot of the things that were happening in in an order and in a way that made it feel immediate and felt like this was this is more than just a reenactment. This felt it felt more, as I said, more immediate than that. And uh, it, it was it was yeah it was like living theater in the streets basically you know and 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 we had four cameras going we had Jared Alterman is our cinematographer and he you know and our director of photography he's the he was the lead camera on everything and then we had um, Bill and Turner Ross two extraordinary documentary filmmakers who were uh, you know cameras then we had Robert Kolodny who's another extraordinary filmmaker so we had filmmakers. In, in those moments, finding things and, and, and getting in there and, and looking for uh, looking for those images. And then, and really, I mean, the, the credit goes to the town because yeah. uh, what, what they did was they, they, they found a way to exercise ghosts on their own. And, and even though we were sort of pushing them along in some ways, they were, they were uh, they were the ones who who you know who who turned it turned it into what it became. Wow, it's really it's really well done, and it's also um, you know it's it's hard not to see this as a there's an element of the Stanford uh, experiment in here. Sure, and there's a there's a lot of elements of different things. The idea that this could never happen in America, you know, kind of I you know sort of plays off of that idea that we wouldn't do something like this. Uh, well, we've been doing we've been doing stuff like this for for uh, more than you know the hundred years plus, and so right. yeah, that, that's one of the haunting things about it is is 
there's this feeling of, um, you know, I can't believe this happened, and then suddenly you feel, wait a minute, it, it's happening again. I mean, for us, yeah, I know. The, the, I know. The, the 17 in Bisbee 17 is very much about 2017. You're absolutely spot on, and uh, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't also talk a little bit about some of the, the people that were, you know, more prominent in the film, but uh, what a great couple of people in terms of Fernando... Uh, is a is just a, a beautiful human being in so many ways. Yeah. And seemed to really embrace uh, what was happening, and the fact that you used him is 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 kind of our our silent guide. He sort of is the is the there's a sort of haunting quality, almost ghost like quality, as he sort of floats in and out of different scenes, but also is present for his role. Uh, that he he was it was one of those striking minors, but he also serves as this kind of counterpoint or how would you how would you put his his sort of countenance in this yeah i mean i I think fernando is i mean fernando begins the film as a a political person who says you know i don't i don't really have time for all this yelling and fighting politics and then and then as you learn his story and he shares his story which is quite remarkable and and heartbreaking you, 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 he becomes closer and closer to radical, um, and and then by the end, he's he's transformed into another person, and and that's that's a that was a genuine transformation. That was a real thing that he went, you know, he went through the process. But what I'd like, you know, I hope when you're watching the film, you're really asking the question: Is it better to to leave ghosts buried, or is it better to exercise them? Yeah. And that's a central question because it, it it really does haunt Fernando. He he. He he's a friend, and we love him. And he's you know he was a remarkable collaborator. But he but the process was not a straightforward one for him. And okay. and it, and you know when you see him making choices in the film, those are his choices that he's making. Well, and yeah. that's important. Well, the one scene, and I'll let you go on this. The one scene where he he's talking to the one of the guys who's going to be the sheriff, and the, um, not the sheriff, but the one of the deputies, shall we say? And he says to him, he's talking about. The he the I forgot the 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 actor um, the uh, James West James yeah. yeah James West thank you he's saying uh, he's going to be playing this role and in in uh, and, he, and I can't remember what prompted him to use the line um, well actually you weren't here first um, we <laughs> Fernando's uh, brown 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 people were here first brown yeah, people were here yeah. first so when you say yeah. we had to we had to move them or whatever it was he said it's just it's such a great moment and the way it's handled in the scene is also indicative of how we ignore so much of our history in this country yeah. in in being polite and it's it's really this is just i i have to tell you you're just a fantastic filmmaker i love everything you do and this is another great example of your work uh bisbee 17 it is really truly watch this film and i think watch it closely people because it really evolves as the film goes on and turns into something extremely powerful by the end it is very, very powerful film. Um, that, thank you so much. Oh, thank you again for being here. Again, Robert Green is the director of the film Bisbee 17. It's in theaters today. And thank you so much again for, for finding time to be here, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. It was nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for your kind words. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. 
Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 